Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to, the, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be shall have been loosed in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, this morning we're going to be finishing up our discussion on the nature of the church um, and uh, looking at its authority, the authority that Christ has given to it, given to us. And uh, before, we, before we start walking through that, would you pray with me? ask for the Lord's blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as always, recognizing that you are a God gracious and merciful, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and who is also the God who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Father, we come before you as those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has brought an end to our sin, the one who has taken the punishment of our guilt so that we can be released from it, and the one who rose again in victory on the third day, declaring his power to save and bringing that power to bear on each one of our lives in due time. Father, thank you that you are a God of great love and compassion a God who shows forth your love, who demonstrates it in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we have every reason to come before you confidently this morning. We have every reason to come before you praising your name and singing glory to the God of heaven because of all that you have done for us. Let us not forget your wondrous deeds, O Lord. Let us bless the Lord with all of our souls. Let us bless his holy name. Let us bless the Lord with all of our souls and forget not his benefits. Father, give us grace to do that together this morning as, as those who are gathered under the banner of the name Jesus. Help us glorify you, Lord, and remember all that you have done for our sake. Father, those who don't know you, those who have not been brought into your church truly in the name of Christ yet, I, I do pray for them if they're here this morning that you would allow your word to penetrate the stony heart Amen. or to be the hammer that breaks it up, that plows up the fallow ground Lord, and plants the good seed of the gospel, nourishes it, Lord, and allows it to grow. God, may that be May that be for them this morning. Or those who are your people gathered here together, may you strengthen their hearts in the truth. Help them stand in it and help them grow in their appreciation of your intentions behind using the church as a means to further them in grace. Lord, we are a prideful people and we are a prideful nation. I think that pride manifests most, mostly in our cry of independence and our desire to live independently. Lord, some of that is good, but a lot of it's prideful and it's wicked in your sight and it infects the way that we view your church. So please overcome that this morning. Cleanse us from sin and purify us for the sake of Christ. Or may we be a true and holy expression 
of the maturity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we start, just want to make clear that the plan right now is to finish this series of Growing in Grace in three weeks, including today. So three more Sundays, and we're going to be wrapping up this series on Growing in Grace. Um, That's painful for me, but I want to get this done before I leave to go on vacation so that when I come back, we launch right into the Gospel of John. So we're going to be closing out this series uh, soon. And I just want to point out, as we're coming to the end, that, again, the, the purpose behind this series can get lost as it seems as though we're, we're, we're digging through the weeds and finding every little bitty thing that we can find out about the means of grace. I assure you, we are not doing that, even if it does feel as though that's what I'm doing to you. We are not examining all the veins on all the leaves, on all the limbs, on all the trees that are in the forest. There's so much more that could be said than what has been said. And probably there are other things, other ways to say what has been said that would be more helpful for you. Uh, That's in the Lord's hands. I can only do what I can do up here. Um, But I do want to encourage you to remember that there's no endeavor in your life that ought to occupy more of your attention than the endeavor to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you put it the way that Jude puts it at the end of his letter, to build yourselves up upon your most holy faith. There is no endeavor in this life that ought to be more valuable to you or more time-consuming even in your life than building yourself up in the faith that is Jesus Christ, your faith in Christ. And so in this series, we've been asking, well, how do we do that? If that is the most important thing that a Christian can do, how do we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? And God's answer for us is found in understanding and using the means of grace. In this series, we've looked at a number of these means of grace, these tools, these spiritual disciplines that God has established for our growth and our good in Christ, being, one of which being the Word, another being prayer, fasting, the Lord's table, baptism, walking in faith, walking in godly fear, and then now we are coming to this point where we are looking at the church as a means of grace. Now, as we've started looking at the church as a means of grace, we wanted to start by simply understanding the nature of the church. If we're going to understand how the church functions as that means of helping us grow in grace, we need to begin by understanding what the church is. And so we've been in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, trying to look at four different things Jesus says about the nature of the church. The first thing we've looked at is the fact that the church is what Christ is building in this world, not anyone else. Christ is putting together his people. He is uniting them together in groups called local churches, and those local churches are representations and expressions of Christ's body universal. So we have a local expression of Christ's church right here at 610 County Road 5 in Stillwater, Minnesota. And there are other local expressions of that church as well. Christ is the one who is building these churches because he is the one who is building his church, his one church. And then we saw that because that is what the church is, and even Christ describing this group of people by the word church, we find that the church is the people of God in the world. Those who are truly gathered by Christ into that assembly are those who are the true people of God. Okay? And then we found, thirdly, that the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and nothing else. So just like Peter, everyone who truly belongs to the body of Christ, the local expression of his church, or His church universal, and then as it expresses itself locally in local churches, 
Those who have truly been brought to belong to the body of Christ are those who have been supernaturally awakened by God the Father through the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to see and believe the truth about His Son. That is what makes up the body of believers that we call the church. Right? And this is where the Puritan movement came from. This desire to see a pure and a holy membership in the church of Jesus Christ. That those who belong to the church are those who have been awakened as the people who belong to the church. Those who see Christ for who he is. And those who have put their hope in him. So that is fundamentally what the church is. It is a group of sinners gathered to God under the banner of a common confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? Trying to run through this so that we can get through the recap. All right. And then fourthly, the fourth thing we're considering about the nature of the church from Matthew 16, 19 is the church's authority. You cannot understand how the church functions as a means of grace in your life if you do not understand the authority that Christ has given to the church. Now, two weeks ago, we started making seven observations from Matthew 16, verse 19, that help us understand what Jesus is talking about or what we mean when we are talking about the authority that belongs to the church. And I just want to run through the ones we've already covered quickly so that we can all be up to speed and then move on to the last two. Number one, we saw that Jesus describes the church's authority by using the picture of keys. We know what keys do. They open doors, they, they unlock them, they lock doors that are shut. Jesus says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that is representing the authority that belongs to the church. And just, just, just to point out here to get another hammer stroke on that nail, keys, are not, keys not only give someone the ability to unlock or lock something, they also give the authority to lock or unlock something. Okay? So Jesus is giving the church something pretty powerful whenever he says, I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We saw, secondly, that Christ has given these keys to the whole church. Now, in verse 19, Jesus is speaking directly to Peter. That is true. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, we acknowledge that, but even though Jesus is speaking directly to Peter, the reality is that as we move on in the New Testament, we find that this same authority represented by these keys is given to all the other apostles just two chapters later in Matthew 18. And then as you keep reading in the New Testament, you find that the same authority that Jesus is talking about here being given to the apostles is being given to the church as you read through the epistles. The same authority to do the same things in regard to the church is being handed on to the church as a whole. And so we see through the testimony of the New Testament that Jesus is giving these keys to the church as a whole. Now thirdly, you guys with me? I feel like I need to catch my breath for a second. Thirdly, we noted that Jesus is the one who gives these keys or gives this authority to the church. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys. Now that means that these keys do not only belong, or excuse me, that means that these keys do not belong to the church, they belong to Jesus. They are Jesus' keys, and they have been entrusted to the church, but they are not derived from the church, and the church does not own them. And therefore, the church has the responsibility to steward these keys in a way that reflects the character of Christ who gave them. And we looked at that a little bit last week. Number four. We noticed also that uh, we noticed also what these keys are designed to open and what they are designed to shut. Jesus describes them in, in verse 19 as the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now that means that these keys were designed to unlock or in some cases to lock the gates of heaven. They were designed to grant access to the kingdom or to deny access to the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, we're going to talk about this more, but we need to make sure we understand that means that there is an inescapable connection between the kingdom of heaven 
and the church on earth. That is a touch point where what is taking place in heaven or what heaven is decreeing ought to take place in the world is in some way being truly and really and genuinely manifested through the church on earth. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute, as I said. Now, last week, we left off in the middle of point number five, observation number five, and I just want to close that up before we move on. Point five was noticing that the only keys that give the church the ability to do something like open the kingdom of heaven, the only keys that have been entrusted the church that give such authority is the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. The gospel is the key or the keys that Christ has entrusted to his church. So the truth about Christ and what he has done to bring sinners to glory is the only tool put into our hands by which we can open the gates of heaven for a sinner. We have no other authority. We have nothing else to appeal to in order to call a sinner to enter into the kingdom of heaven apart from what Jesus Christ has done to enable that sinner to come. It is the good news of a crucified Messiah for the sake of sinners that the church proclaims and unlocks the kingdom of heaven for sinners. It's like what 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, makes it very clear. It is through the preaching of the gospel that God calls sinners to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is what God the Father uses to usher sinners into the kingdom of heaven. That's how they obtain glory in Christ Jesus. So as the church goes forth and uses those keys, as the church goes forth opening the gates of heaven by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are preaching the good news of the Son of God who was tabernacling among us. They are preaching the good news of His power and His glory, of His ministry, showing us His compassion and mercy for sinners, showing us His willingness to forgive and embrace and cleanse and renew sinners for the glory of His name. The church goes forth declaring the message of a love of God manifested in a crucified Son of God on a tree for ungodly sinners. The church goes forth proclaiming a message of a resurrected Savior, one who has proved in his ability to save sinners like you and me. We go forth proclaiming a message of a son of God, Jesus Christ, who has ascended on high and is now seated on the throne in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the nations. We go forth proclaiming this kind of good news to the world. And as we do so, the kingdom of heaven is being unlocked for some sinners. They are being called and beckoned by the Father through that message being preached through the church. The Father is beckoning sinners, calling them to come, come, receive forgiveness and reconciliation in the name of His Son. So that's the key that the church has to unlock the kingdom of heaven. But what's really important to notice is that the same key that unlocks the kingdom of heaven for some is the key that locks the kingdom of heaven for others. There are many, if not most, people in this world who simply will not accept the message of Christ's gospel. And listen, we are shocked when people don't receive the good news of Jesus. Doesn't it shock us in some ways? We might say that we ought to expect that because we're living in a world of sinners that hates God. And yet we find ourselves just overwhelmed by the reality that most people in our country nowadays do not believe in Jesus Christ. We complain about the degradation of the impact of the gospel in this nation as if it's something that, that, that is just, you know, unbelievable. Whereas the, the, the contrary is actually the case. We should expect the reality that the world will oppose this message. It should not shock us when people do not believe in Jesus Christ. So when we go forth and we preach the good news of Jesus Christ, we cannot go doing that in fear of somehow turning people away from the Lord. Now there's a, there's a way to present Christ. There's a way that we should, we should make sure we're careful in presenting it with gentleness and love and compassion. But we always go forth in truth. 
I, man, I feel like I'm just running ahead of myself. I, I must feel pressure to get through this message today, and I don't, I don't want that. But I hear so many Christians who are filled with fear at the thought of perhaps sharing the gospel with someone they know is lost. Most often it's a family member, right? And there's a fear in them that somehow they're going to share truth about Jesus and they are going to be the reason why that person doesn't come to faith in Jesus. Right? They're going to be the reason why that person doesn't repent of sin and doesn't come to glory and doesn't find new life in Christ. My friend, I want to tell you that if you are going to a sinner with genuine love and with a sincere desire to honor Christ, you don't need to be afraid of causing someone to go to hell by presenting to them the truth. Because the reality is, guys, they're already going to hell. And if you never step out with that key to to seek to unlock the kingdom of heaven for that sinner, all you're doing is solidifying them in a path that's leading them to hell. You are causing them to go to hell, so to speak, by not sharing the truth with them. So we should get rid of that fear that somehow we're going to make people not come to Christ by sharing with them the truth about Christ. Guys, that's how God draws the sinner to Christ. It's through the gospel. Now, with that said, we recognize that there there are some for whom the gates of heaven will be unlocked through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are others for whom it will be closed. Many, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? They, They want to go to heaven. They want to be with their idea of God, but they refuse to go there if it means they have to come through the key, which is Jesus Christ. They want heaven, but they don't want Christ. Well, those are the terms of the gospel. And as the church goes forth preaching that gospel, we unlock the gates of heaven for those who will receive Christ, and we shut the gates of heaven for those who will not. I really appreciated the way that the Heidelberg Catechism framed this topic here. In question 84... It asks, how is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the gospel? This is a catechism that was written in the late 1550s in Heidelberg, Germany. So it's, it's a confession of reformed believers who are grappling with these issues of what does it look like to live the Christian life and to have a true understanding of the word of God. And so in this catechism question, they're asking, how is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the gospel? Their answer to that is is really twofold. One, it's opened. You can think of it this way. This is dealing with how it is open. By proclaiming and openly witnessing according to the command of Christ to believers, one and all, that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. So it's for the sake of Christ. That the Father is pleased to release a sinner from his or her sin and to bring them into a reconciled state with himself in Christ. But on the contrary, the catechism says, we close, we shut the kingdom of heaven by preaching the gospel, by proclaiming and witnessing to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation abide on them so long as they are not converted. That's how we shut the kingdom of heaven to them. According to the witness of this gospel, God will judge both in this life and in that which is to come. And that's rich. But I appreciated the way that they framed this discussion there. So the keys of the kingdom of heaven are the truths of Christ revealed in the gospel. And part of what it means for the church to use those keys is simply declaring that gospel in this world and calling all sinners everywhere to come and enter into the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus the Messiah. Okay? But, now if you've zoned, let's come back to it because now we're moving into the next two points that are really the culmination of what we're looking at here in this chapter, Matthew 16, this section. 
That is one way that we use the, kings, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We go forth proclaiming the gospel in the world and seeking to unlock the kingdom of heaven for them. But in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, there is something a little more specific that Jesus mentions concerning the use of these keys. And to me, these final two observations that we're going to look at are the most amazing and the most shocking realities about the kind of authority Christ has entrusted to the church. Honestly, these are observations that I would deny being true if Christ himself hadn't said it. So what are these two observations, these two final ones? Well, number one, which is actually number six, What does Jesus call his church to do with these keys? Well, it says here in verse 19 that these keys are for the purpose of binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, obviously, binding has to do with restraining something or constraining or restricting someone's access to something. It's like the angel in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 2, the same word for, for binding or being bound appears, where the angel has bound Satan, right? meaning that this angel has the authority to restrain Satan and no longer allow him to deceive the nations. But Jesus used that same word in Matthew 12, 29, when he spoke of his own work of binding Satan. That he had bound the strong man and was plundering his house. And what is the proof that Jesus had bound the strong man? It was that the house of that strong man was being plundered, right? So just as a side note here, every sinner then that is converted to Christ out of the world is a demonstration that Jesus Christ has bound the devil and is plundering his house. Because Jesus has stripped away the devil's power to deceive you and keep you from seeing the truth. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about binding something. We're talking about restraining or constricting someone, restricting their access to something. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus says that the church has authority to bind something. And what exactly is he talking about? What, is the church's, what does the church have authority to bind? I think people have offered a number of answers to that question. Because this language of binding and loosing was commonly used by rabbis in Jesus' day to speak of the behavior that the rabbi would permit or not permit for those who were following him, a lot of people say that what Jesus is saying here is that the church has been given authority to regulate the behavior of those who will belong to its body. So I think that's one possible understanding of this. I don't agree with it, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But I, I would not say that someone is necessarily in error if they hold to that position. I think others would say that this is talking about the church's authority to bind spiritual powers and authorities in the, in the heavenly realm, right? I, I shared a video with a couple of people this week of uh, Kenneth Copeland uh, binding the devil, binding COVID, and demanding that COVID no longer exist. That was two years ago. He hasn't succeeded. Right? But that kind of authority is what some people think that Jesus is giving to the church here. Authority to bind in the heavenly places or spiritual realm. Well, I think both of these suggestions are ignoring the fact that Jesus makes very clear what he means by binding and loosing just a couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 18 is the only other time that this language of binding and loosing appears in the New Testament. And in Matthew 18, it is being used in the context of church discipline. 
Now stay with me, because this is really important, okay? Now you guys know the steps of church discipline outlined here. Step one is going to a sinning, when there's a sinning member in the church and someone realizes that this member is sinning or maybe this member has sinned against this individual person, it is that person's responsibility to go deal with the sinning member one-on-one, right? This guards against gossip, this guards against slander, and it actually seeks in love and compassion to deal with an issue behind closed doors, right? So that you're not defaming the reputation of someone else among the other members of the church. You deal one-on-one with that person. And if you can't come to terms, if you can't come to an agreement that one of you has sinned or one of you is not interpreting what sin is rightly, then you bring along with you two or three others, two or three witnesses, right? And those witnesses are to come and confirm the facts of the situation and seek to discern who is right and who is wrong. Now, if they find that this sinning member, this this person who was charged with sin, actually had sinned, and they begin counseling this member to repent, and that member is now rejecting the counsel of the initial witness and is now rejecting the counsel of two or three more, then the next step is to bring that situation up before the church as a whole. Right? That's step three. And if the counsel of the entire church is that this person is sinning, this person has sinned against the Lord, and they call him or her to repent and that person refuses to do that, then comes step four, which is excommunication. Removing a person from the fellowship of the people of God because he or she is refusing to repent and show their allegiance to Christ. Now, it's important to see that it's at that point in this discussion, in Matthew 18, 18, When the church has decided to excommunicate someone from their fellowship, it's at that point where Jesus says to them, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So in other words, in light of this, clearly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the church's authority to bind and loose, he is talking about the church's authority to regulate its membership to determine who is in and who is out of the fellowship of the saints on earth. Now specifically, binding in this context means binding a person to the guilt of his or her sin and declaring that a person, because they will not let go of their sin in order to return to Christ, then the church's authority is to bind that person to the guilt of his or her sin and declare that person to be outside of the fellowship of God's people. That's what excommunication is. You are declaring someone to be outside of the fellowship of God's people until or unless he or she shows genuine repentance. That's what binding would mean in this context, and loosing that person would mean releasing that person from his or her guilt. By the authority of Christ, welcoming that person into the fellowship of God's people on earth. Now, this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 20, verse 23, when he says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. If you loose someone from their sin, They have indeed been loosed from that sin. If you bind someone to their sin, then they are still bound to that sin. Now Christ declares that the church has authority to do that. And it's really important to understand that the church does not claim that authority for herself. That is something that Christ has given it. Now do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what these texts are saying? They're saying that the church has the authority to declare someone forgiven. And the church has the authority to declare someone not forgiven. Now, just be honest. Doesn't that feel a little unnerving? Doesn't that feel as though, no, that's not right. Wait, Christ is the one who forgives sins, not the church. Aren't we sounding a little 
Roman Catholic, when we start talking about the church having authority to forgive sins and the church having authority to bind someone to their sins? Does Jesus really mean that the church has authority to forgive or retain a person's sins? And doesn't that then exalt the church to a position of authority that only truly and rightly belongs to Christ? Well, in one sense, we have to say, yes, that is what Christ is doing with this church or with his church, but not in a sinful way. Let me, I'll explain that in a minute, but there's a big deal. This is a big deal in light of what we have already seen about the nature of the church. If the church is indeed something that Christ himself is building, if the church is actually the people of God gathered together in the world and in glory, then to say that the church has the authority to declare someone in or to declare someone out is to say that the church has authority to determine who Christ is joining to that church and who Christ is not joining to that church. That the church has the authority to declare that a person actually is among the people of God and the church has the authority to declare that a person is not among the people of God. This is what official membership is, guys. It is the church operating in its authority to declare that someone actually is a part of the kingdom of heaven as best as she can. She doesn't always get it right. She makes mistakes. She doesn't discern everything properly all the time. But that reality of mistakes does not undermine the fact that Christ has indeed given her authority to do that. And when a church decides that someone is not worthy of being joined to the fellowship of the members here, the church is declaring over a person, you do not belong to the people of Christ and you do not belong to the people of God on earth. At least not yet. Now we live in a day where the reality of church membership is being rejected outright. Right? Official church membership, I mean where people seem to think that they can have a true and genuine relationship with Christ and not have the same kind of committed relationship with Christ people. We live in a day of consumerism, right? Where someone only joins a church if that church has something to offer him. I like the music. I like the preaching. Oh, the people are great. I think I'm going to join this church. But what happens when the preaching gets dull? Still true, but not exciting. What happens when the music seems flat? Or maybe it's not up to your taste. Maybe you prefer the old hymns as opposed to the new hymns that we sing, or maybe vice versa. Well, what happens when the people are going through a hard season and they're just not expressing the kind of love that you would want to see from the church? Or do you cut and run then? You haven't made a formal commitment in membership, so you're free to do that, right? That, that, this is not how Christ intended his church to function, guys. Yes, there is a time to leave a church. It is when that church is beginning to preach error and beginning to operate unbiblically. And they won't heed calls to repent and return to what Christ intends for her. But we live in such a consumeristic society that it really damages our understanding of our relationship to the church and the kind of authority that Christ intends the church to have over our lives. Now, no matter how you slice this, this is a shocking reality to say that the church has the authority to declare someone in or to declare someone out of the kingdom of heaven, to bind someone in their sin or to loose that person from his or her sin. So how is it possible for the decisions of the church, the declarations of the church, to have such authority? 
How is it possible for a church to function that way and not become something that is as ungodly as the Roman Catholic Church in its wielding of its authority? Well, that leads us to the seventh observation that we find here in Matthew 16, 19. That Christ intends for these keys to be for the binding and loosing of sinners in regard to their relationship to the church. And point seven shows us why that is the case. Number seven, your fellowship with the church is indicative of your fellowship with Christ in heaven. And hear me carefully, I'm not saying that your fellowship with Christ in heaven is brokered or mediated by the church. What I am saying is that your relationship with Christ's true church, the one that he is building, indicates the state of your relationship with Christ himself. You notice in verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's awkward wording, isn't it? In fact, I think every time that someone has stood up to read this text, they have not caught the wording rightly on that first part. They've said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That sounds more natural to say something like that. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, whatever we bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That means that it's bound in heaven first. And the binding on earth is what happens as a result of what has been bound in heaven. Or whatever the church decides to loose on earth is something that has already been decided to be loosed in heaven. I know the phrasing in this verse is a little awkward, but it's really important to see what Jesus is saying here in order to truly appreciate what the church is and the authority that she has. Even in Greek, this is very awkward, awkwardly worded. But it is making clear to us that the decisions that are currently being made by the church on earth are decisions that have already been made in heaven. So when the church is functioning in her authority appropriately, when she stewards her authority according to the character of Christ and his will and intention for giving her that authority, then whatever the church decides to bind on earth or whatever the church decides to loosen on earth is simply a manifestation of what heaven has already determined to do. In other words, what the church does and decides to do in the present age on earth are things that have already been determined by God. Brian Borgman had a great statement regarding this that helped me understand it a lot. He said on this verse, concerning this verse, whatever decisions are made and actions taken by the church are preceded by a sovereign decision made in heaven. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 18, verses 19 through 20. I just want you to listen to this as I read it. We're coming to the end, guys. Stay with me, okay? Truly I say to you, Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Same wording, right? From Matthew 16, 19, except now it's Matthew 18, 19. He says, again, I say to you, explaining what he has just said, again, I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. So wherever two or three are gathered in Christ's name and agree about anything that should be done, Jesus tells us the Father will do it. Now, why is that? What gives us that guarantee? Well, that's verse 20, where Jesus says, For, or because, where two or three have gathered together in my name, 
I am there in their midst. Now, in this verse, Jesus reveals to us a pretty massive truth relating to the nature of the church and relating to the church's connection to him. The Father will do whatever the two to three people gathered together in Christ's name agree to do because Jesus Christ himself is present among those two to three believers And the implication here is that in whatever those believers are deciding to do, Christ is present and he is intimately involved in bringing them to that decision. So Christ is among two to three people and Jesus can say, I guarantee you when two or three of you are gathered together in my name, whatever you decide to do, it will be done. Because when you're gathered in my name, I am there with you in your midst. You see what he's saying? I'm here with you and I'm going to bring you to the right decision when you have truly gathered together in my name. This is why what the church determines to bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. Because the decree in heaven determines the decision that Jesus leads the church to make. Do you understand that? James Bannerman, 18th or 19th century Presbyterian, he points out the glory of what this is saying, and I really want you to listen to this statement. Because Christ is among his church when they gather in his name to decide on a matter, Bannerman writes, Christ is the chief actor in what is done. The decision to which the church is led in the exercise of faith and prayer under the teaching of the Holy Spirit sent by Christ to open to them the word and the providence of God, the decision to which they are led is his decision. Talking about Christ's decision. Follow that quote, okay? This is how decisions that are settled in heaven are actually revealed on earth through the church. Because when the church is truly gathered together in the name of Christ and deciding to do something, deciding whether to bind a sinner or loose a sinner, deciding whether to excommunicate a sinner, deciding who belongs to the kingdom of God and who doesn't, when the church is truly gathered together in sincerity in the name of Christ, Christ is there among them and he is leading them to the right decision. Let me point to the Heidelberg Catechism one more time, if you guys are okay with that. It really doesn't matter if you are or not, but (laughs) the Heidelberg Catechism, question 85. You know, I'm sorry, I don't know why I ask you questions like that. Maybe I just feel uncomfortable for some reason. Who knows? But let me point to the Heidelberg Catechism one more time. Question 85. The Catechism asks, how is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? That's what we're talking about, Christian discipline here. Matthew 18. The answer they gave is, the kingdom of heaven is shut and opened by Christian discipline when... According to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and after having been admonished often with brotherly concern, still will not renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church, listen to this, and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. Did you follow that? The kingdom of heaven is shut and open by Christian discipline when... A sinning member who refuses to repent is cast out of the church and is kept from participating in what this calls the sacraments. Fellowship and baptism and in the Lord's table. 
right? The communion of the saints and the gathering of the believers. They are excluded by the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. That's quite a statement. That when the church excludes a person truly and rightly from the fellowship of that church, God himself excludes that person from fellowship in the kingdom of heaven. That shows that these believers understood the weight behind what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 18 through 20. When he was talking about their authority to bind and loose and binding and loosing things that have already been bound and loosed in heaven. Jesus, or these, these brothers here in this confession, they understood that what was happening through the church, what Christ was accomplishing through the church, was what God himself was doing through them. Now, this has great implications for understanding the role that the church ought to have in our lives and the authority that has been given to the church from God. And this is where we're going to end on, we're going to end on this, so please follow me through. One implication is that the church is heaven's agent on earth. And when a church body is exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven appropriately, her decisions on matters carry the full weight and authority of Christ himself. So practically speaking... When a local expression of Christ's church determines, for example, that a person continuing in sin and unrepentance is unfit for the kingdom of heaven and uses the keys to cut that person off from fellowship in the body, that decision being manifested through the church is actually the decision of Christ himself being manifested through the church. A decision that was already settled in heaven and is now being made known through the witness and the counsel of his church. Or, on the flip side, when the church loosens a person from his or her guilt through proclaiming over him or her the true gospel and applying the promises of the gospel to his or her life, that is, when they see evidence of genuine repentance of sin in that person's life, and they discern marks of a true love for Jesus Christ and a genuine love for his people, then the decision made by the church to welcome that person into their fellowship is a manifestation of Christ's own desire to welcome that person into fellowship with him. The church's decision to bring in even a disciplined member back into the fellowship of the body, that is the decision of Christ himself bringing that sinner back into fellowship with the people of God and gathering that sinner back with those who are gathered in his name. And when either one of those decisions is being made by a church in regard to a person, when it is being done appropriately, that person's fellowship or lack of fellowship with the church represents that person's fellowship or lack of fellowship with the kingdom of heaven. So your standing in regard to the true church of Jesus Christ will always be an earthly manifestation of your standing in heaven. Now what about when the church has made a decision that is not in line with the character and the nature of Christ? or is not in line with his will as it is clearly revealed in his word. Because that's the standard we're holding up in the church. We're saying, this is the will of Christ, and the church has all authority in heaven to execute that will. She has no authority to step outside the boundaries of that will. So what happens when a church body inappropriately uses her authority and steps outside of the will of Christ in exercising it? Well, in that case... When that body of people is gathered together to make that decision, they are not gathered together in the name of Christ. 
They were not gathered under his authority, nor were they praying or working through a matter in light of the truth revealed in his word. And therefore, whatever decision that they make, it does not have the backing of heaven because it was not Christ's decision being made known through them. They may have been gathered together and made a decision based on any number of factors, but if it wasn't primarily, first and foremost, the glory of Jesus Christ and seeking to uphold His will as it is revealed in His Word, then it is ineffectual. It bears no weight. And therefore, the counsel of other churches is to come alongside with Christ's will, and seek to correct a church who has gone into error. And to seek to exercise those keys appropriately. Now I hope you understand how significant this is in, under, in, in really grasping the importance of the local church in your life. If, if the decisions of the kingdom of heaven are being revealed through the decisions being made in the church... What does that mean for your connection to the local church? Does that, I mean, if, if we were to think of this, think of this in this sense. When Christ says two or three are gathered in his name, he's there among them. If you knew that Christ was here among us and that his decisions were being made known through the church when they're in, in accord with his will and the word, Wouldn't you respect the opinion of the church pretty highly? When the church decrees over you or declares over you, is a better word, (laughs) declares over you that you are a true member of Christ's body and that you are truly one who seems to belong to the kingdom of heaven, shouldn't that give you some assurance? Shouldn't that give you some some comfort and some hope and joy in the reality that something is being manifested through the collective opinion of the body that is actually communicating to you something from Christ. Vice versa on that. But what about a more common issue that's crept up? What about not partaking in the fellowship of the church? What about removing yourself from the fellowship of the local church? If if two or three are gathered together in Christ's name and Christ is there in their midst when they do so, What does it mean when you step out of the fellowship of that local church for six months, a year, two years, five years? You understand who you are choosing not to have fellowship with is not simply those who can infect you with the virus. You are choosing not to have fellowship with Christ gathered together with his people. We're going to get more into this. And I told you guys in the beginning when we started talking about the nature of the church that all of these principles, we're going to be building upon them as we move forward in these next two messages. But what I'm trying to amplify for all of you is the fact that the church is not something that you can choose to set aside and still continue on your merry way in true fellowship with Jesus. It's not possible. And if someone willingly removes themselves from the fellowship of the church, you are making a dangerous decision to remove yourself from practical, real, genuine fellowship with Christ. I know, I listen, let me... This, this means of grace is the whole reason why I wanted to enter into this discussion of the means of grace to begin with. Because what I've seen over the last two years is the reality that we do not understand what the church is. 
I hear people all over the place saying, I've attended church the last two years, who haven't actually stepped foot physically inside of a church building or into a gathering with Christ people, yet they'll still claim, I have been having fellowship with the church the last two years. Oh, you ask them, well, how has that been happening? And they say, oh, I come online every weekend. I listen to the songs online every weekend. I'm gathering with the church through the internet, right? No, you're not. No, you're not. You're listening to a sermon. You might be hearing some singing, but you are not gathering with Christ who is gathered with his people. The fact that this has just swept across the evangelical church shows us how shallow our perspective of what the church really is. Do you understand that? Now, I understand that there are some who, who are wanting to show wisdom. Right? I get that. You're more vulnerable. You see the virus spreading around the people of our church. Hey, I get it. It's wise for you to say, I'm going to take a couple weeks here and let this clear through the room, and then I'm going to come back. That's totally fine. That is totally fine. You have a limited time frame that you are looking at, and you have an end to it. But when you sit back and you say, I can't come into the fellowship of the church, and there's no definitive end to that time frame, my friend, you need to consider what you're doing. You're removing yourself from the fellowship with Christ that manifests in the fellowship of the church. And there's no way you can be growing spiritually with Christ if you choose to do that. Now, in conclusion, there's much more that could be said to help us understand the nature of the church. Right? The church is described in the New Testament as God's field, right? Those whom God, God is plowing up this field and He's throwing the, sowing the good seed of the gospel so that He might reap fruit for the glory of His name. The church is described as God's temple, right? That temple represent, in the Old Testament representing the presence of God among His people and where God's people would come to meet with God and worship with Him. The church in the New Covenant is that now. It's where God's special presence manifests among His people, and it's where God's people gather together to worship in His presence. The church is described in the New Testament as a building. It's something that God is erecting, right? The church is described as God's household, 1 Timothy 3. It's where God dwells among His sons and daughters with love and grace as, a, as our Heavenly Father. The church is described as God's vine, John 15, right, the true branches coming off of the true church, who is Jesus Christ himself, the true Israel. The church is described as God's flock, it's his sheep, right, from both Jewish and Gentile people. So there's more that we could look at. But the most important takeaway for us today is simply this. You cannot escape from the fact that your relationship with Christ is intimately connected to your relationship with his church. And that relationship with his church will be manifesting locally. Locally among his church. To have a living, vibrant, thriving, healthy relationship with Christ means that you will have a living, vibrant, thriving, and healthy relationship with his people. Now let me close with a quote from a dear preacher named Leonard Ravenhill. You guys know of him. And this gets to the purpose behind why we're looking at all of this. He said, the world is not waiting for a new definition of Christianity. It's waiting for a new demonstration of Christianity. Dare I say that that's not so much what the world is waiting for, but it is what so many believers are waiting for. What so many of us are longing to see is not a new definition of Christianity or a new definition of the church, 
It's simply a demonstration of the church, a living, real, true, sincere demonstration of what the church is called to be. Now, I see so much of a true demonstration of the church here at Oak Ridge. I do. I see it in your love for each other. I see it in the way that you interact with each other on the gospel. I see it in the way that you reach out to other people. You invite them in. This is the most giving, most sacrificial church I've ever been a part of. There's a love here for Christ's people that is from God himself. And I need you to know that. But guys, we can't rest on our laurels. We need to keep moving forward, right? So in the coming weeks, we're going to look at God's purpose for the church more intimately. And then we're going to look at the priority of the church finally. All right? So as we grow in our understanding of and our appreciation for the church of Jesus Christ, and as our relationships with and within the church deepen, to that same degree, we will be growing in our appreciation and understanding of his grace, of God's grace. So may the Lord grant us mercy and grace to hear and act upon his word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for grace that is greater than all of our sin. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Father, I thank you for the blood of your Son that covers us, or the righteousness of your Son that clothes us. uh, That we, as your people, are intimately connected and tied to you in heaven. Father, help us worship you now. Help us worship you truly. As we sing our closing hymn, Lord, let it be sung from hearts that are filled with a sense of your glory and filled with a love for your people. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The benediction, hear the words of our Lord Jesus. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. May the Lord help us see that reality, that Christ is gathered with us. He comes to be with us in our midst. May that guide us moving forward. And may you go in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ the rest of this week. Amen.